Hello, and welcome to the Fancy Fantasy Football Podcast. I am your commissioner and host, even though commissioner, probably a misnomer this season. It might not happen, uh, but the podcast is back after a hiatus. I hope everyone's doing well, and I'm with a special guest who some of you know and love, and some of you do not know but will soon love. That is Bailey Miller. Say hello, Bailey. Hello. How's it going, man? It's going great. Um, yeah, I didn't. I guess I kind of knew that this was fantasy football related. Um, I I will say I've never played fantasy football, but I did used to play uh, fantasy Bachelor. Have I ever told you about this? Yes, I have heard of your fantasy Bachelor, and I've heard of other people playing it, but I I've never played it myself. Um, yeah. yeah. Feel free. So, okay. First of all, who are you? <laughs> How do yeah. we know each other? Right. So, okay. Well, the story of Pat and I meeting each other uh, goes back to when I moved to sh- Chicago um, back in like 2008. And I looked up on the old interwebs. I was like, hey, uh, I don't know that many people in Chicago. Uh, I should meet people. What would I do with them? Well, I used to play Dungeons and Dragons with people when I was in high school, and I never did it in college, and I miss it. So I found a, a gaming place uh, that had a forum where people were setting up games. I signed up to play with some people. One of those people uh, was Kevin, and Kevin uh, and I started playing games together, D&D, and then board games, uh, and then years pass and kevin is working with this other guy named pat who is also a fan of board games and the three of us start playing board games together and then uh pat and i started kind of hanging out separately uh and that's how we kind of became friends from my perspective yep i I, that that holds true so yeah I, i worked at the city of chicago law department and i worked with kevin and Kevin had a pre-existing board game group that I joined up with, and Bailey was among that group, and it was fun, and we, uh, yeah, we, we became friends. Uh, you lived in Chicago for a good long while, and I lived in Chicago for a while, and then we both moved away, me less far away, uh, but you, you, where do you live now, man? So I'm in Cleveland now, and by the way, um, like whenever Mo and I float the idea of making our way back to the Chicago metro area. Um, Mo knows that I want us to move to Oak Park. Um, Not only because you're there um, and, you know, friendship, but also because I really liked it. I really like your neighborhood. Um, It's actually, it actually reminds me of my neighborhood here in uh, Cleveland. We've really liked living in Cleveland. Uh, we've were, we've been surprised at how much we've liked it, really, um, because we're both Michigan natives, and so we're trained from very early to hate everything Ohioan. Um, and yeah, but we got here. You know, all the neighbors were super welcoming. We actually ended up being randomly next door neighbors to Michigan fans, um, which was cool. But all the neighbors have been really nice and uh, welcoming, and our neighborhood is super um, like wooded. It's just really green. Walking around um, is really comfortable and nice. Uh, in in like April, there were magnolias everywhere. These like big pink fuchsia, you know, trees like, just all over the place in our neighborhood, which was awesome to um, take our 
our baby boy Soham for a walk and do that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, so we've been in Cleveland for, wow, I guess we're all coming up on a year. Uh, we moved here in August of last year. So Nice. Uh, yeah. yeah. couple things. Mm-hmm. First, yes, Oak Park is nice, and there are also a lot of magnolia trees around us. So, you know, nice. you, you would feel right at home. Uh, you should, awesome. should definitely move because it's nice uh, <laughs> and it'd be fun to hang out again. And also, what 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 brings you guys to Cleveland? What are you guys doing there? And also, who is this uh, Soham fellow you speak of? Right. So my wife, Mo, uh, is a doctor. Uh, she is a transplant hepatologist um, on the medical side. So she's not doing surgeries. She's Studies birds. Uh, no, she like her, that's her, her that's exactly reptiles. Is that herpetologist? Anyway, joke. It's a good joke. Yeah, it was a very good joke. Very good joke. It, no, it's and you know, uh, like Microsoft Office programs mm-hmm. do not accept the word hepatologist, which I think is ludicrous because livers are very important. Um, and yeah, so that's that's the deal. Liver transplant. So she's like medically taking care of the people pre-operation, post-operation for liver transplants. And so she finished her. She did a fellowship at. University of Michigan. Um, we were living together there. That's when we got married. Um, and then she finished that a, a year ago uh, this month. And we looked around. You know, there, there aren't a ton of places that do liver transplants. So the you know, we couldn't move to whatever city in the country that we wanted to, really. Like, it's kind of bigger population centers and then some academic towns like Ann Arbor. And so Cleveland is actually just one of the closest places. Also, Cleveland Clinic is very highly rated in liver and also in a bunch of other stuff. Yeah, obviously, everyone's um, heard of Cleveland Clinic. Right, yeah. So it's it's a good place to work for, you know, for a first job for sure, for her to be able to learn from people and stuff. And, yeah, so we moved down here. And, yeah, so Soham uh, is our baby boy. He's uh, about 14 months right now. And yeah, kind of the story of Cleveland and the story of Soham are tied together. Uh, we were like hunting for a house down here because Mo got the job with Cleveland Clinic in like March of that year, say. Um, so we, then we immediately started looking for places because Mo at that time was like seven and a half months pregnant. Um, and we were like, it'd be great if we could figure out our housing in Cleveland before the baby is is part of our life because we know that once he's around it's going to be a lot harder to like think um and do things um so so kept popping down to cleveland eventually uh in late april i go down there with my dad um to go house hunting and leave mo back in ann arbor because her uh obgyn says she's too close to her due date to be that far away from the hospital so we go we go to this uh this house first it was like mo and i really liked it online but we had liked other places online before but my dad and i go there and it's awesome it's exactly what we want it's five minutes away from the clinic so i facetime mo from the place um we're we're all excited about it we see a few other places but none of them stack up come back to uh ann arbor the next day mo goes in for like a routine checkup um uh checking on the baby and basically they just do a series of escalating tests on her and she 
effectively stays in the hospital until Soham is born. So, so the labor happens, you know, the whole childbirth thing happens way before we had planned to. I mean, a couple of weeks, I say way, but a couple of weeks before we had planned to, which was surprising enough for us. And we really wanted to get an offer in on this house because it had just gone on the market and we were really excited about it. So we actually put in an offer from the hospital they countered while we were still in the hospital. Oh, we did that, another offer. That's really rude of them. They should. <laughs> I know, right? They, uh, they, then we find they accepted. We we uh, signed off on the you know the the, the basic offer. Uh, they accepted our offer while we were in the hospital, and then like uh, eighteen hours later, Soham was born. Something <laughs> like that. She, she um, felt yeah. things were taken care of, so she could go ahead and proceed. Yeah, exactly. Oh, and by the way, also, I was finishing my degree in, uh, I was getting Master's of Supply Chain Management um, at the time, and that was also exam week. So I actually had to leave the hospital, go and pick up a take-home exam. Uh, thankfully, they were intended to be take-home exams. I picked it up from the business school, came back, did it in the hospital. Uh, the next morning, brought it back, dropped it off at 8 a.m., came back to the hospital about 15 minutes after i got back the doctor came in and checked on her and was like hey you're ready to go and then a couple of hours later soham was was born right so like all that happened within like a 36 hour period pretty crazy yeah um yeah so that's the story of mo and me and soham and cleveland and so he's like, like 14 months or so he said yeah. Oh, yeah. And so Mo got this job at Cleveland. So that's what brought us here. And then I job hunted once she had this. And I found actually a contracting gig at Cleveland, uh, Cleveland Clinic also. Um, and then actually this week, I started an internal job, an actual full-time job uh, in the pharmacy sourcing team, senior senior analyst for pharma, pharmacy sourcing. Sweet. Congratulations yeah. on the new job. Glad glad you have something permanent. That's I'm sure feels good as well. It does. So. Yeah, it's nice. Although I'm not, I haven't escaped time cards. Uh, there apparently we still have to fill out time cards, which is a real bummer of of information. I thought that, that I thought that I was past that. <laughs> yeah, that sucks. I have worked uh, only government jobs since actually I guess ever, but like as far as especially my legal jobs, uh and so I've never had to do real billing like a lot of attorneys do. And it is mm. something I've actively avoided as much as possible. So I, I sympathize yeah. with having to do I have to like fill out I have to like sign off on time cards essentially, but it's just like did you work eight hours that day? Yes, that's about it. So nothing Sure. Um Yeah, hopefully this is on that level. Yeah. Well good luck. So cool. So things are moving around for you. Uh Moved. Yeah. So moved from Chicago to Ann Arbor to Cleveland, had a kid, couple of new jobs, bought a house. Yep. Yep. So. Oh, the basement flooded recently. Oh, that was fun. bummer. Yeah. Um, and I'd never done a homeowner's insurance claim before, which was also a new adventure, but it wasn't. It wasn't too painful. Um, and thankfully the the flooding was relatively minor, also. So. Lessons learned without too much pain. Yeah. Uh, that terrifies me as well. I have never owned a home. Uh, so having to deal with that also sounds frightening. Get a good sump pump is what I would tell you. Yeah. That sounds important. Also, also have flood insurance. 
because we were very glad that we did. Yeah, I bet. I, I hear that that is yeah, a big deal. And yeah, like constantly people want to claim other stuff uh, that should have been flood insurance and then they don't have flood insurance and they're screwed. That's what I hear. Yeah. But so uh, with all that, with the move and the Cleveland Clinic related jobs, uh, how are you guys holding up during quarantine and COVID and all this? Uh, how are you guys affected by that? Well, okay, so I think the good the good news is that we don't have any friends here anyways to hang out <laughs> Aww. with. It's, I know that sounds sad, but it's actually fine because basically, yeah, like we, we had just kind of moved here. We, you know, we have the little baby and we're kind of figuring out how to take care of him. Um, so we didn't really like, we didn't even really have time or bandwidth for too much of a social life. And then, you know, once we kind of got our head above water there, then it was kind of, then kind of COVID, COVID came along. But yeah, like, the whole idea of you can't hang out with the people that are nearby. You can only digitally hang out with people is kind of perfect for us because all of our close friends, we can really only connect with digitally anyways, you know? Yeah. Um, so it just encourages everybody to get onto these platforms and connect in this way, which is actually kind of convenient. Um, so from a social perspective, it's, it's not too impactful. I mean, it's, it's a bummer to not be able to take Soham to, like a baseball game. I was really looking forward to taking him to a baseball game and that, that sort of thing. Um, but whatever, such minor stuff. Um, and Mo is going to the hospital, but she's not, she, she almost exclusively is not treating COVID positive patients. Um, because again, her people are like the kind of really complicated sick people with a bunch of other stuff. Um, and so Unlike it's not, straightforward, simple COVID. It's well, it's yeah. I don't know. I, I guess I don't know where that falls. Um, but yeah, like usually, her patients, you know, it's their liver patients, but they also have pancreatic problems, or they have kidney kidney problems, and they have heart problems, and they have reptile you know problems. I mean? Like these yeah. people, it's confusing. Ex exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. Snake problems, bird problems. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So she hasn't had to interact with it too much. Um, and so, you know, she's obviously very cautious, but, um, we've been okay so far. And also actually a fun thing that I was able to do is, um, I got pulled into the supply chain, the COVID supply chain emergency response team. Um, so basically when the Cleveland clinic was really ramping up its, um, PPE supplies and testing supplies and all kinds of stuff like that, like, it was like a all hands on deck sort of thing. I was pulled into sort of the the nexus team um, that was that was kind of coordinating those activities, um, and was able to contribute there. So what I did was kind of gather information about what's being bought and what's arriving and that sort of thing, and uh, put it into nice looking powerpoints and organized it with a little bit of Excel manipulation and stuff and uh, and then that would get shown to the entire supply chain department at Cleveland Clinic every day um, at 4:30 for like a month. So that was like that was exciting and yeah. and uh, and cool to be able to kind of contribute. Cool. Yeah, you're all about supply yeah. chains, right? That's your thing. And that's the thing. That's the thing, man. So. Um, yeah, which I'm still learning a lot about, but but that's that's the industry that I've shoehorned my way into. Nice. Well. 
congratulations. Thanks for solving COVID. I appreciate it. Both of you, <laughs> both of you really working on it. I, I, you know, because I have a few friends that are doctors, and, you know, uh, I my sympathies are with them, and thanks to them. Uh, and then uh, you work at Cleveland Clinic as a non-doctor. Our friend, our mutual board game friend Tom is working at University of Chicago's Medical Center uh, doing stuff, work, doing, like, research stuff with directly on covid i think so a lot of a lot of my friends are doing stuff with covid and so uh thank you all please fix it thank you (laughs) yeah it's yeah and i mean now that i'm in pharmacy i mean it's a lot of it is just kind of like the regular stuff that has to get done but the the you know the wheels have to keep moving i think that's that's kind of a big thing Mm -hmm. about it too but yeah cool man yeah it's cool to it's cool to be involved excellent well I I'm glad that everyone got that uh, inside knowledge, learning about Bailey. As I said, great guy, fun guy, smart guy, uh, good singer. So everyone become a fan of Bailey. No problem. Uh, your your big you one of your big things at Michigan was Glee Club, correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the men's Glee Club. Um. So anyway, I figured because of our mutual interests and uh, the foundation of our friendship we could talk about games some for for the episode so i want to talk about like what if anything you've been playing lately uh and uh and you had a couple of uh ideas to pitch about games and whatnot sure yeah so so sadly i haven't been able to play any board games recently um because my wife really isn't that into them my 14 month old is not good at them mm-hmm. um it, or he he doesn't follow the rules i think really is the problem yeah he just destroys destroys things mm-hmm. um and yeah and you can't really get close to anybody else there's a tabletop cafe here in town that like tried opening up in a socially distanced way for a little bit but i didn't figure it was worth it i bought a gift card from them for the future to you know try to help them stay open um but yeah as a replacement for that um i've still played i still play video games uh i'm very excited right now for baldur's gate 3 are you is this on your radar i'm i i am familiar with the baldur's gate series but i've never played it um but i i i know that it is coming up and that people are very excited it's been it's a long dormant series and people are avid fans and the people i know also the people working on it have made the most baldur's gate like games since the last Baldur's Gate, so it seems like it's a good match between developer and game. But go ahead and tell us about it and why you're excited. Sure. So yeah, so Baldur's Gate is, uh, like you said, it's an it's an old um, franchise, and probably from the late '90s, I would guess. I don't know. I'd have to look it up. Um, maybe. Uh, yeah. So, and it's based on it's it's in the universe of D and D. Keeps going back realms. to D and D for you, man. It it all goes back to D and D. I I do like the I like the lore of D and D because it's basically like Lord of the Rings. You know, like D and D was kind of a ripoff of Lord of the Rings and other various existing fantasy properties. Um, and so you get to actually be a character in one of these stories. What 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 more could you ask for? Mm-hmm. Um. So yeah. So and I definitely played it a bunch when I was a kid, and it was one of the first games that I really got into. Um, 
uh, the first game. And then the second game came out, I was less into that. And then, yeah, a bunch of time passed, like over 10 years um, before they finally came out with Baldur's Gate 3. So that alone is some level of hype. And then the other angle of hype, like you were mentioning, the, uh, the studio that's developing it um, has most recently developed this other game called Divinity Original Sin. And then it's and then a sequel for it, um, and they they've got some really good design chops. Basically, like they the way that they do turn based combat is probably the best that I've ever seen. Um, where it's really it feels sort of accurate in in that what any character takes one turn to do um, is somewhat equivalent to what some other character does, even though they can do kind of wildly different things mm-hmm. um they also have lots of really cool interactivity things so for example like if you've got a guy up on a hill and he's standing next to a torch like you can shoot your arrow through the torch and it'll light on fire and then when it hits the ground there, if there's a pool of oil there then it will explode the oil and like none of that is like scripted none of that is um, you know, oh, I'm going to cast the flaming arrow spell, or I'm going to target the oil thing. It's just, um, oh, there's a name for it, but it's just coming out of environmental interactions yeah. between these things, mm-hmm. right? The arrow is flammable. It's not scripted. When flame, yeah. yeah, when flame touches the oil, it explodes, right? Like so all these interactions like that, um, they have baked into the game, yeah. which is kind of what you need for trying to translate a tabletop role-playing game to a video game you know because like in a tabletop role-playing game there's a there's like a spell like uh an illusion spell and and the illusion spell says that you can create an illusion of anything mm-hmm. as long as it's within a couple of parameters right like it says it has to be smaller than a five foot by five foot um like cube uh and you know but any outside of that it could be anything and how do you how could you possibly program that yeah. into into a video game right mm-hmm. um but if anybody can do it i think these guys can can figure out some interesting solutions for that sort of problem so yeah so i'm i'm hyped about that um and so uh, in kind of preparation you know there's only so much reading about it you can do because there isn't that much information that comes out so i've kind of found some other similar older games that i'm kicking around um there's similar stuff called pillars of eternity um similar deal of like isometric party-based fantasy rpg thing um another one that's called pathfinder kingmaker um that sort of thing oh and then actually there's another game that uh that kevin turned me on to are you familiar with monster train i've heard of it i I really want to play it because uh, when I was going to talk about games, I was going to talk um, a little bit of uh, Slay the Spire. And so I'm very interested right. in Monster Train, but I, I don't have a very good PC. And so I'm hoping for a console release so I can play it on Switch, for instance. But yes, I've heard that it's awesome. I have a pretty bad PC and it runs um, for what that's worth. Um, but yeah, it is a lot like Slay the Spire. They steal a lot of mechanics from it. It's <laughs> just like uh, un- unabashedly, like even down to like the the little scripted events, uh, the little encounters that you have, um, where you get to make 
a simple choice and get some sort of rewards with some sort of downsides or whatever. Um, where it would have, you know, it's generally just regular text and then some words are in a different color or some words are moving around or shaking or something like that. You know what I'm talking about in Play the Spire? Yeah. They do the exact same thing in yeah. Monster Train, nice. which is like such a specific thing yeah. to rip off. It's kind of like all those, um, um, it, it really getting off course, but the, all the Dark Souls-like games, like shockingly, mm-hmm. like steal very specific things with like campfires and stuff. Like it seems like when people find a formula, they like, like they really, really copy it in some games. Right, right. But it does have some original stuff. Um, you know, it's it's got the the classic thing of, oh, you're the bad guys. You're you're trying to relight the fires of hell. Is like the the conceit or whatever, right? Um, but it does have some cool things of of movement and uh, it's got different factions that have different things. One thing that I like about it actually. Um, so you know, in Slay the Spire, you pick a class and you are that class for the entire time. Yeah. Um, one thing that this does is it has you pick a major class and a minor class, mm-hmm. um, and then it starts you off with a deck of the basic cards from both. It's probably like two thirds, one third, mm-hmm. um, which I think is a cool mechanic because then it really adds to the kind of the replayability and the variability of of playstyles, right? Of, of see what yeah. seeing what different combinations of of classes feels like yeah definitely how uh so slay the spire yeah they're both card-based roguelikes uh so you're building a card as you go and you're and it's different every time and gets and frequently and you ha- and you you have a run where you try to finish the game uh you don't have to do it in one sitting but you have to do it without dying and uh right. and so in slay the spire there's only five classes uh, and so they all have, there's like general cards that everyone can have, but then there's class specific cards, but there's no like mingling in Slay the Spire. Right. And yeah, if anybody listening to this is a board game fan, less of a video game fan, Don't I would worry, compare mo- it a lot to Dominion. Most of the people listening are neither board game fans nor video game fans, and they turned it off. <laughs> 20 minutes ago. So don't worry. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, and I would say, though, Monster Train definitely lacks the sort of humor um, that Slay the Spire has. You know, like, Slay the Spire doesn't really do in-your-face humor, but certain things are just kind of funny or silly. Yeah, some of the um, some of the question mark encounters are pretty funny. Yeah, or just, like, um, the sounds that things will make, like the the thief that steals from you, I feel like makes like a funny sound when he runs away. Yeah. Um, or like some of the achievements are pretty funny. Um, and the, uh... where like if you eat the, if you do the consume card on the, uh, donut shaped bad guy, then you get like a special achievement for eating the donut or something. Nice. Lots of stuff like that. There's a, and like there's a, a cultist and he's like, my power shall not be surpassed. And then when you beat him, he right. says, my power was surpassed. Uh, right so that's pretty funny right. uh so how hard do you find slay the spire and how hard do you find monster train so both of them do i think a good job of of scaling up difficulty uh naturally like as you as you win you then go up the they call it ascension paths in um slay the spire where like each level of quote-unquote ascension um it makes something harder about the game you start with less health or you start with a bad card in your deck or something like that um they do the exact same mechanic in monster train um 
And I think that's a good, that's a natural way to build a uh, difficulty curve, right? Because as long as you're winning, it keeps incrementing that. And you can always manually bring it back down if you want to be a baby about it. Wow. Um, Judgmental. <laughs> um but then as long as you keep winning that keeps pushing up um so i think both of them do that pretty well um and yeah i feel like you don't have to you know it's not a game that you have to read online and do like metagaming you def i definitely haven't done that at all for monster train i did it a little bit for slay the spire in certain cases um Particularly, like, I guess I would say Slay the Spire is harder because I felt like I really had to think and plan to defeat certain types of bosses. Like, I would have to know, okay, this boss is coming at the end of this uh, level or whatever. And, okay, so that means over the course of this level, I'm going to have to get X and Y types of cards or kind of prepare myself in whatever way. You know what I mean? Yeah, um, trial and error, and you got to learn some specific things. Yeah, and that's not been so true with Monster Train. But then again, I'm I'm earlier on in the Ascension things. I've only played. I've only won like four, like five games or something like that. At point. Yeah. Cool. At this point. Uh, so two quick, one quick thing, and then one extreme and potentially large tangent that I did not plan for that I could just completely cut out. But for the quick thing was, as far as uh, the developers um, for Baldur's Gate 3, you mentioned, like, you know, how the uh, uh, Divinity Original Sin was so much like it. I actually, I listened to a lot of video game podcasts, and one of them uh, specifically uh, said that, like, the, they went to Dungeons & Dragons and said, like, hey, can we make Baldur's Gate 3? uh you know we we really want to do it and they're and like before they made divinity and they're like they said essentially you're not ready and so they made divinity one and two essentially as a as a job application for the ability to make Baldur's gate three so they oh that's awesome yeah like they they like wanted to do this all along and so they made those games to show that they could and that they that they deserved it so uh, it was a long-term thing for them for sure that's amazing. I didn't realize that. Um, the other, So the completely huge tangent that I wasn't planning on, but since you brought up both Dungeons & Dragons multiple times and Lord of the Rings, mm. I am very enmeshed in liberal Twitter lately, since, okay. since essentially 2016. Uh, and so there's been a lot of discussion on specifically liberal oh, game yes. playing I... Twitter about the ra- yeah. the latent racism in both Dungeons and Dragons and Lord of the Rings. And I was wondering if you have been exposed to these thoughts and if you have any feelings about it. Yeah. Um, I have been exposed to that and, and me and my D and D playing buddies, including Kevin um, have been talking about it. Um, so yeah, it's an active conversation in that community for sure. Um, and yeah, it has been kind of interesting. So, what is so, the nature okay, of just, the racism debate? Right yeah, now? right. Yeah, yeah. Lay the background. So, going back to Tolkien, um, there's definitely some uh, racist undertones slash overtones um, in 
the Lord of the Rings. That's kind of the sad truth. Like the orcs are darker skinned and they're uh, brutish and evil by nature. Uh, and and there's you know, lots of people have done lots of analysis on this, but the basic idea that's that's poisonous is that one race is inherently evil. Like not not like you know I want your land, you want my land, and so we're gonna fight each other. And and because of that, I think of you as evil because you're going against what I want, right? And and potentially you kill people of my race sometimes because you're trying to conquer my lands and I'm trying to conquer yours or whatever. It's like, no, 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 it's not one of those things. It's like, these guys are just bad guys because of their fundamentally, fundamentally from birth evil. Right. And so that's kind of the poisonous thought um, as I understand it. Um, And then, you know, in D and D some, some things were, borrowed uh you know whole cloth from from lord of the rings and one of the things sadly is orcs basically they look and act and sound and behave exactly like tolkien's orcs um and so that and so the racist stuff came along with them um and then for a good measure they the designers of D threw in some other stuff uh some other also racist things um there are in in D&D there's this area known as the underdark which is basically underground an entire underground civilization um and most of the uh peoples of the underground of the underdark uh are evil um which okay I don't know why you they would be evil but that's what it is um and for some reason, and this is what really doesn't make sense, those people are also dark-skinned. There's dark-skinned elves called drow, uh, and there's dark-skinned or gray-skinned dwarves called dwergar, I think. Um, And they're all evil. They're all bad guys. So the dark-skinned races are inherently evil for no good reason. And they're also dark-skinned for no good reason. So that's not great. Um, and so, yeah, so all of that's really problematic. And then the other thing that you know, I've listened to a, a couple of podcasts. One that um, another one of the guys in my group sent along, um, and they were talking about you know, you think of it also from the player's perspective. You read this rule book, and it says um, you can be a human, a dwarf, an elf, or you can be a, a half orc, or you can be a a drow. Oh, and by the way, if you're if you're human, you're probably good. And if you're a half-orc, you're probably evil. Um, and in a game that's really tries to set itself apart by letting the character, by, you know, having this concept of character agency, extreme character agency, you know, like do whatever you can imagine, be whoever you want to be. Um, it's weird that out of the gate, they would kind of put you into a box like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, oh, you want to be a good half work? Well, that doesn't really exist. So try again. Yeah. Right? Like that's that's stupid. Um so anyways, so Wizards of the Coast, um, which is the designer of Dungeons and Dragons, have they've been making like incremental progress on this um for a while. Like they softened some of those things and removed some racist language from the 
most recent editions of the books. Um, but that was a couple of years ago, uh, a handful of years ago now. Um, and now they're taking another pass at it and, and really separating the concept of good versus evil from the races themselves. And so anybody can be any thing, which is good. And I'm sure they're going to address some of the other uh bad pieces as they go back through it yeah which is good yeah so it's improving but it's it's been a a known concern for a long time but they're slowly very recently kind of trying to make some improvement it sounds like yeah exactly uh another thing i saw was like uh there's a guy who was he worked at wizards of the coast a person of color and he uh raised a lot of similar issues and he was fired uh, and he he talked about what it was like to work there as a person of color and not be not not be heard and not be not have his ideas respected and then have some of his ideas stolen and stuff. So the, he was kind of also saying like culturally in the company itself is problematic. Um, but uh, oh, I didn't know about that. Yeah, there's yeah. Um, I mean, I, I don't. I I just read like that guy's tweets and some responses to that, but not like a bunch of articles or anything. So I don't really know too much about it, but um. There, there's a lot of stuff out there and uh there's one good person who has a lot of thoughts on this is austin walker a games journalist who worked he was founded waypoint radio on vice uh he wor- used to work at giant bomb and then he went to vice and now he is uh not doing waypoint directly anymore but he has he's uh african-american and he's really into games and he's uh, he he they called him like dr walker he has a phd maybe uh, he's, he's very scholarly in his approach to games and so he he has a lot of thoughts and analysis on this so if you want further reading look up austin walker uh, that's hmm. my piece of advice so anyway that was not planned at all but i apologize for if that was too much for you or for the no, audience no. Uh, but uh, i just thought i'd mention it so anyway you were under the misapprehension that this was going to be shark tank and that somehow you could be rewarded for good ideas which you cannot because I have no means of rewarding your good ideas, but you have some pitches, and I'd be happy to hear them, and then not be able to give you money to start your business. So please, uh, what what do you have for us today, Mr. Miller? Yeah. Okay. So the first the first game's title is 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 being worked on, but uh, the basic concept is that it's a board game about adults playing like pick up sports like pick up basketball and injuring themselves in the course of it um which is <clears throat> obviously kind of a silly a silly theme but one that I thought might might kind of connect with some of the uh board game enthusiast crowd uh there might be some Venn diagram space there um so you want to insult your audience right off the bat <clears throat> that's right yeah exactly you are and, you a know, slob please play this game <clears throat> Well, it's listen. A slob isn't going to get out off off their butt and and play some some b-ball and twist their ankle, you know. Like the slob is just going to sit on the couch and do nothing, right? So like getting out there and doing it. That's and so actually, uh, Mo, my wife, suggested um, the title "Weekend Warrior," mm, yeah, uh, which which sometimes refers to this sort of person, but um, and is a little bit more uplifting, um. But yeah, it's kind of a, the basic idea is that it's kind of a push your luck sort of mechanic where um, you can, 
I'm thinking it's kind of opposed rolling uh, of dice against other players. And, um, you know, by default, you have a certain set of dice. Those are kind of like your, those represent kind of getting out there and putting in a normal amount of effort. And then you can decide to put in, you know, more effort, but then you have to use the, like, the red dice, you know, or the dice that are, are dangerous. Um, and I was thinking that basically on each die side, you, in addition to the regular numbers or pips uh, on the die, you would have icons representing getting an injury, mm -hmm. um, right? And and then if you got injuries, then you would have to deal with them, and so it would potentially be kind of snowballing, um, that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That, so, yeah, I uh, you mentioned this one to me in advance. This is the only one that I believe that I knew of in advance. And uh, and so, yeah, I thought I think it's a fun idea. It is it is um, definitely like very, as you said, tongue in cheek sounding. Um, mm -hmm. And there are tabletop sports themed games that are also oftentimes kind of humorous. The, the biggest one uh, that I am aware of is Blood Bowl which is based in the Warhammer universe. And I don't, I haven't played the tabletop game, but I've played the digital equivalent of it. And it is definitely very tongue in cheek with like hyper violence and humorous announcers. And you are like gruesomely injuring yourself all the time. Um, and it, that again, speaking of, you know, races and stuff that it, it is not just Lord of the Rings and Dungeons and Dragons. It's like every role playing. Well, yeah. not except for the ones that were recently made by like independent ones that, with, that had this in mind but all of the big ones that have been around for a while all have the same issue so there's a lot of like good versus evil and good races and bad races um i was thinking of like yeah, it's, elder scrolls it's and world of warcraft uh, i'll have the same yeah. thing but anyway so uh it sounded kind of similar to that but without the fantasy trappings and with variable levels of um strategy depending on the different mechanics you wanted to implement Right. Yeah. Um, and I think it would be kind of a mathy strategy. You know, Blood Bowl, Blood Bowl is a surprisingly complex game. Yes. Um, it's like, it's really hard. It's one of the hardest games I've ever played, I feel like, to, to actually get it right. And yeah, so it wouldn't be that intense. And I, I wasn't really thinking of a even a 3D space. Maybe, maybe if it was to be like... So you mentioned King of Tokyo. I think that's a good example. King of Tokyo, um, for those listening, is is a a simple, I guess, deceptively simple is something people might say, um, game about uh, King Kong or Godzilla attacking a city and and then having a battle with other King Kong, Godzilla, Mothra style monsters within that city. And so it's a fight to the death or fight to whoever can do the most damage to the city uh, first sort of game. Um, and it's like everything about it is like feels kid-like. It's all these ca really cartoony sort of things. And the dice are twice the size of regular dice. Um, 
but there's a there's some strategy to it for sure yeah um and the the only movement or like three-dimensional thing is there's a little board that has one space on it for a monster and that monster is in tokyo and the other monsters sit off the side of the table and then have to get their way into tokyo and fight over that so anyways like that's the kind of the level i think i think you kind of hit it right in terms of like complexity that i kind of see with this and also probably like physical representation mm-hmm. you know so no big grid system or anything yeah, yeah. like that not not painting minis and stuff yeah right yeah i think yeah it sounds cool uh, I, and another thing i mentioned was like i i i as i said i do know that you like king of tokyo and we played it several times together um if i if i had if i would have guessed before you sent me one of your ideas i would have guessed that it was going to be a much deeper strategy game because i know you like strategy so much and so it was surprising that it was a little lighter quicker game but but it does make sense i think so this is this is a good transition to another game idea and i think it'd be i think it'll be more fun to talk about a new game idea okay um this is actually one that i haven't thought about in a while it was something that i came up with years ago i had to look up my my notes on it from evernote I guess it's actually March March 2018 I wrote this. Um, and so it's automation, the board game. So I was thinking about how, how could you represent... Uh, okay, so I... Supply chain step, engineering. Taking... Well, no, actually. <laughs> so it's more, it's more like ideological than that. So taking a step back, I am a big, I, I'm, I'm Yang Gang. I was Yang Gang when he was in um, uh, Andrew Yang. And the whole idea of universal basic income, I think, is very necessary because I believe that we're moving towards a time where there are more people than there are value adding jobs to do basically um and so human labor i think is becoming uh obsolete in in a lot of ways um or at least the relationship between labor and number of humans is getting out of whack um and then i think that that will exacerbate quite a bit over the coming decades um and so I was thinking, okay, well, okay, if this is something that I believe, um, I wonder how I could represent it. Um, and one language that I feel like I can speak is board games. You know, like you can play a game where, you know, you can play Power Grid, where you're building a power company uh, and you're buying power plants and you're connecting them to different cities and you have money going back and forth. And it's like some sort of approximation of, (laughs) you know, that sort of economy. Um, And lots of things where they kind of represent something in the real world. And I was thinking, okay, how could I, how could I represent this concept of a devolving economy? And I started thinking, this is actually interesting because it throws a classic board gaming mechanic on its head. Um, so many games are based on this idea of engine building. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Like you, you, settlers of Catan, you harvest some wood and brick and stuff, and you then build a city with it, and then that city generates some new resources, and then with that you can build some more, and right, and it snowballs. That's the engine building thing. Yeah. Right? I was thinking, well, what if you could build an engine destroying game? where each player starts out with an established engine and throughout the course of the game, it basically breaks down and they have to like 
deal with that. <laughs> and and in this case, the, the engine that they have is kind of a functioning economy where you have people who work jobs and are paid for those jobs and then use the money that they get from those jobs to buy goods and services, which then, right, that's that's how an economy works. But then if you replace people with robots, um, that works out pretty well for the for the entities that are making things with those robots because they can pay them less, but then, or they pay less for them, I mean. Uh, but then you run into trouble because that that economy starts to to slow down, right? You don't have the payment coming back. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, so okay, I'll just read this really quickly. Um, each player starts with a set of wor- worker tokens distributed across uh, a number of different industry spaces, agriculture, manufacturing, services, technology, etc. Each player has their own unemployment space, which starts with a nominal amount of workers. Each player has a potential pool of robot tokens. Uh, and then every turn, the player has to play an automation card from their hand, which will do some or all of the following. Add robot tokens to one or more industries. Uh, shuffle workers to other industries. Uh, remove workers from the board to their player's unemployment space. Or upgrade an, uh, an industry. And then at the end of the round, the gross world spend uh, is generated and distributed. So every worker... Uh, generates currency as as spending that the workers are spending money, right? And then the gross world spend is divided into industries, and then they and then those industries pay out the players that have something in that industry, mm-hmm. um, right? And so as you have fewer and fewer workers on the board, uh, you know, this should create an engine where GW the the gross world spend starts high and gradually. St- drops throughout the course of the game as workers are replaced by robots and sent to unemployment. Eventually, players will be paying more for their unemployed than they're making from their workers, and they run out of money. And so, and, and I was thinking that that's kind of where I got to with it. Like, maybe it becomes like a last man standing thing of like, who can kind of keep this this thing running for long enough before they totally run dry, or um, Well, that seems depressing. I know, right? <laughs> or, or maybe it's like uh, it's really almost like a a straight up endorsement of uh, universal basic income because it's you know somehow the player has to get enough political uh, clout <laughs> to have a revolution or something, yeah. um, right? Anyway, that's that's the idea. Right, so, I have what are your four your thoughts. thoughts? Yes, I'll be. I'll try to be organized. And then, first of all, uh. Jen and John, my listeners, my two the, the two most loyal listeners, I would say, uh, would be extremely disappointed in me if I didn't say that Andrew Yang kind of sucked. Uh, <laughs> oh, uh, all right. Well, we're going to return to that. Okay. I, I, I support universal basic income, but I, in general, uh, he was not liberal enough in his policies and wanted to... He, it was not, uh, you know, he was going to undermine Social Security, and so there would be some universal basic income, but then the it still would not fix the problem for the poorest Americans. Um, so I, I was all Warren. I'm, I was a big fan of Warren. I, sure. so, uh, amenable to Bernie, um, but uh, preferred Warren, and I'm little, little sad about Joe being the nominee. But, uh, but yeah, I. 
couldn't get on the Yang Gang train, um, but I do support universal basic income, and and I'm glad that and he did actually he successfully just like Bernie has successfully pushed, um, Medicare for all into the like he moved the Overton window on that discussion, and now it is being discussed openly. Right. Uh, similarly, yep. Andrew Yang has contributed to universal basic income being like discussed openly as an actual policy like that was his answer to literally every question in the debate uh and so like it it, but he succeeded in getting it to be a topic so that's good i commend him for that uh that's my first and and i would guess i would guess that that was one of his main realistic goals yeah with you know what i mean like i think that was yeah he he, he, i'm sure he did he thought it was an extreme long shot to actually be the nominee uh so right so good job um my Next thought is two two thoughts combined. So really, I only have three thoughts, I think. But um, so the in general, the game, the two games that I that remind me most of what you've described are Euphoria um, right. from Stonemaier Games, because that one is a dystopian worker game and specifically the mechanic the the like slowly losing mechanic kind of uh that you described reminds me of the knowledge mechanic in euphoria because the more workers you have the more dice you roll the more net knowledge there is but then if they become too self-aware because of having so much knowledge they uh essentially realize that they live in a dystopia and then they flee so um so yeah the the knowledge being bad reminded me a little bit of of that what you described and then the other game that is more more obscure um that i enjoy uh i don't think we ever played this one together um but it's cute uh have you ever heard of or played last will i don't think so uh it's it's very cute it it has a has really fun art and a cute theme and it is also the only thing that it so you are you all get inheritance and essentially the goal is to spend all of your inheritance and so it's a it's a spending game as a as an opposed to an earning money game and so like you have to upgrade your house to a more expensive house and like blah 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 and it's very cutesy very cute theme very cute art and it's just all about yeah like have like exactly spending all of your inheritance is kind of the goal of the game and so it's so the reverse the 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 reverse money acquisition thing reminded me of the reverse efficiency thing essentially or the reverse economy thing it's obviously an increased efficiency you describe but anyway uh so those are the two games that are that, that deliberately kind of turn things on their head in a way uh in the way that you have described um and then yeah and then the last comment because that was really two of them as i said uh was to me it sounds like um yeah i to me it would be unsatisfying to be the person to like cling to the old system as long as possible and that is the victory <laughs> condition um to like still have people who have not been replaced by robots i guess you could paint a prettier picture on it and say like you successfully made your workers indispensable or or moved to more modernized industries or something you you could maybe paint it that way if you wanted to but but uh certainly with the main theme that you described as as essentially like accepting the uh inexorable march towards uh robot overlords um I think that it sounds to me like the goal should be essentially accepting the increased productivity and um, surplus of goods and services without having work. Uh, So essentially you just want to be able to create the Star Trek society, the post money society. Uh, Right. And so I think that, yeah, like just moving 
away from money and just being able to take advantage of the surplus of goods should be the goal, like moving past money. I don't know. Right. I don't know how you do yep. that in a board game, but yeah. So I had some notes on that exact idea. Um, uh, social programs mechanic, social programs could be standard options that all players have access to for themselves throughout the games. Um, each player could choose to activate unemployment insurance, welfare, etc., all the way up to universal basic income. Uh, the player has to invest in them, but they convert, confer some sort of advantages, usually reducing the negative impact of unemployed workers. Um, it could be necessary to implement them at certain levels of unemployment, or they could have unemployment count minimums. The top-level social program, universal basic income, could also be a win condition. Uh, so that's like that's, the top yeah. of your technology pyramid in a Civ game. Like that's the space right. race. Yeah, space race. Exactly. Yeah, that's interesting. Could do kind of like a multiple win. Yes, something along those lines. Um, yeah, I, I. so I agree that it... And also I think elimination games, um, like long elimination games are just bad game oh, design. Yeah. You know, so yeah. So I think that that whole thing was kind of a a bad direction but if you don't have elimination you do have to figure out a little bit of ba balancing stuff um and so yeah it could do some sort of unrest system but anyways okay i want to go back to your other thing i don't i'm not going to go back to andrew yang because that could be his own conversation um <laughs> the euphoria i was definitely thinking about euphoria with this yeah um because, yeah, it's exactly that sort of thing where you're representing workers and stuff. But I had actually forgotten about the knowledge system, or or at least I hadn't consciously remembered it. Um, maybe I was sort of unintentionally stealing from it. Um, but, yeah, that's interesting. I'll have to go back to that and, and look at it again. Yeah, it's a, but, I like um, that game a lot. It's fun, for sure. Yeah, it's really... That, like, it, that one's got really tight game design, you know, like yeah. really well-balanced and interesting mechanics. Yeah, it's, it's, it is just, it is a worker placement game and you're just like converting a bottom level resource to a middle level resource to a top level resource to get victory points and stuff like that. Like it, it is just like one of those, it's very, but it, it yeah. has a lot of different, there's a lot of different ways to score points and there's a lot of different types of resources to convert and stuff like that. So it's just, it is, it is well done, but it is mechanically very much like, one of those, but then, but again, yeah, the, the, the little twist with the dystopia and the reverse uh, incentive to have more workers and that sort of thing is fun. I thought they did interesting things with um, like what was showing on the dice, you know, mm -hmm. um, the dice rolling and then what you can use those for and stuff. I thought, I thought they did good things with that. Yeah. It was a well-designed game. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, something, something along those lines. Yeah. I, I kind of like the idea of a, board game that can influence people ideologically you know mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um that's that's kind of a a cool there's actually a game okay this is another really random aside but uh are, are you familiar with the concept of circular engineering i have not heard that term i believe okay so the basic idea is um using waste from one product or process okay as input for another product Makes or sense. process. Okay, yeah. Right. So in a circular economy or circular engineering or whatever, that's all trying to design these connections between things. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, it's a really common thing in agriculture, actually. For sure. Yeah. Um, right. Like the, 
the chaff from the grain goes off to be used for uh you know this everything is Feeding used somewhere crop right? rotation yeah, exactly. this that the other yeah exactly like everything's got they've figured out how to really minimize waste by using every thing that gets created on the side of something else as as an input and so i i learned about this in the supply chain management program that i was in um i thought it was a really interesting idea um it's also really challenging. Um, I mean, recycling, I'm sure you've heard of all the problems that have been happening the world over with recycling. Um, and it's because post-consumer products are dirty, yeah. basically. Everything's contaminated. Right? And, and the cost of cleaning something is generally m more than the cost of just mining something new, right? Mm -hmm. That's just kind of the sad truth of it, um, like a lot of the time. And so finding opportunities where that's not the case um, is kind of the the thing. And so um, anyways, I like this idea. I think it's cool. And I think the more people that are kind of thinking about it, you know, hopefully it can get worked into more design of products and things like that. Um, and I actually found there's a, there's a game called In the Loop um, that's specifically like a board game designed to teach the concept of like circular economies. Um, yeah. And sadly, because it's an educational board game, it's literally hundreds of dollars, like $700. Wow. Because uh, <laughs> you get a whole kit to like teach a class yeah, or yeah. whatever, and, but you can't like just buy the game, which is annoying to me. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I, th I think, I think that idea of like ideologically, and there's another one that came out on Kickstarter a while back about gerrymandering. I don't know if you heard about that. Uh, no, I haven't. Um, but yeah, that's, that, that is something to learn about for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's people doing it. I think it's an interesting new kind of mechanism for, for getting ideas out there. Nice. Uh, there, that reminded me when you talked about the educational game, um, that is actually used to teach a specific concept. That reminds me of the fact that if, I don't know if you heard the stories, but uh, there was a, a, the CIA invented a board game that was kind of like a training thing. What? Uh, yeah. If you search a CIA board game, you'll, there's like stories and it, it, in 2018, it became free to play by the freedom of information act. Um, so there's one called collection uh, and it's kind of like pandemic. That's crazy. Yeah. So anyway, the CIA invented educational games, and some of them are available <laughs> to, you know, print and play now because of FOIA. So, that's a thing. Uh, Boy. Anywho, cool, cool. Well, that's fun. Uh, yeah. And I believe we, unfortunately, we're we're of course because it is such a thrill to speak with you. We're running a little long, so I would like to, if I may, move to you had a product pitch of some kind. Oh. Okay. Yeah. So. Okay. Uh, I don't know what Jen did with either of the kids, but we did um, uh, pumping and bottle feeding exclusively. Um, so that's that's what we that was our system, which meant there was just a lot of pumping. So right for breast milk, and this is there's just a lot of pumping and and uh, bottles and things all over the place. Yeah, um, Jen Jen did pump. It's hard, and to... she super hated it. For sure, is is a, yes. it takes forever. There's a ton of bottles. It's not physically right. comfortable. Yeah, right. Um, and so one of the things about that is, you know, you can freeze it or you can use it. And if you use it, then you have uh, 
time frame in which to do that. Mm -hmm. um, and when you put something in the refrigerator, you put it in in the front. And when you take something out of the refrigerator, you also take it out of the front. Uh, and so if you're not thinking about it, um, it could be very easy to put a bottle in and then put another bottle in in front of it and then like keep doing that and never grab the one in the back. So in, in computer right. science terms, you're talking about a stack versus a queue. Yes. Or in industrial engineering terms, I'm talking about first in, first yeah. out or last yeah. in, first FIFO out. FIFO versus lethal. Mm -hmm. Correct. Yes, yes. Um, so this is a problem, right? And people come up with all sorts of different solutions for it. I mean, some people just kind of keep track of it mentally. Some people will write on stickers and, you know, label them and stuff, um, or whatever. But I was thinking there, there should really just be like a little, uh, like lazy, lazy Susan style thing. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, where you kind of push it in on one side and it sort of pushes out on the other side. Uh, and so it naturally, you know, it just has kind of a U shape, uh, meaning that you're the oldest bottle in there is the, is the one that you'll grab if you grab from the, the outside. Um, and so I looked for this and it doesn't exist at least as well as I could Google and Amazon and whatever search, um, this sort of item doesn't exist. They have them for soda. Like they have them for cans, the size of cans. Um, and they're horizontal. You've probably seen them before. They've been around since we were kids, um, where it's kind of like a, a U on its side, and you put a, a can on the top, and it sort of moves around and then waits to be grabbed on the bottom. Um, I think so. It's kind of hard to describe. Yeah. But anyways. So is the point yeah. of doing it for cans? Obviously, cans don't have a spoilage problem. It's just to, right. for, like, the cold, you want the coldest ones, I guess. I guess. And I think it's also, it's easier. You can like easier to load it on the top and then on the bottom, it's sort of like perched there for you to grab easily. Yeah. I, I honestly don't really know why it exists. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It seems like it's not necessary. Kids. Yeah. Right. But like people had them. Um, but yeah, for this, it's like, it actually, there's a reason for it, right. To, to actually uh, put things in the, not the right side. So that's, that's the basic idea is, is kind of a plastic, um, little caddy sort of thing uh yeah like a lazy susan but really just i think i was thinking about like u-shaped and you just push it along and and it comes out the other side with the the new bottles and there's different ways you could do it you could put it on an incline so that it sort of you know they all queue up all nicely um with like you know ball bearings on the side yeah. on the bottom if you want to be like fancy that sort of thing. what i was thinking of i was trying to think of there's like a thing like this is a very bad example. This is not at all what I'm talking about. But like something that's like kind of like spring loaded where it it's very specifically like pops the next one into place as you push one down. And so it kind of like yeah. like a either <laughs> uh like a pez dispenser but but obviously they come out the bottom instead of the top because a pez dispenser they come out the same order you put them in. But something kind of like that right. or like what the other thing what I'm trying to th I'm trying to think of something that's like a pill or something that I have seen in my mind, but the only thing that comes to mind where you're popping things in one at a time is a, is a mag, a gun magazine. And that is not what you want to envision when you're talking about a baby <laughs> bottles. Um, yeah. I wouldn't include that in the marketing, but, and again, that's, that's or still at least a, not in the North and that's still a, a last in 
first out uh, situation as well, because they obviously only go in and out on one side. But but I was trying to think, there must be, I'm thinking of something where it's kind of like you're pushing something in with your thumb and it moves everything along forward one notch. Uh, and that, but uh, so to me, yeah, I was thinking of it more like it's a U shape, but it just, it just bumps everything exactly one spot as you put in the, right. the most. But of course you don't want it to eject if it's already full. You don't want it to exactly. eject one necessarily because if you don't need it at that time. So I guess that's has its limitations. As and well. y- yeah, and if you have like you know, if it say it has a capacity of five bottles, and say you only have three in there, then like what do you have to like put in empty bottles to get the next one out? You know. Yeah. So yeah, there's there's lots of considerations like that. I, I think I think either a really simple system where you know you're just manually pushing it along and it's just flat and you know, simple, um, kind of the super cheap version or yeah. Fancier version would be on an incline or you could assume that they're, you know, like we used to build bottles that would be like ready to, uh, be used. Right. So like the nipple on and everything, which means you can't tip them on their side Mm -hmm. or it'll leak out. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but you could just put caps on them and then you could have them sideways and you could, it could basically be like the soda can thing. Um, which is nice because you can use gravity yeah. a little bit easier. It um, could be if it's vertical, you could have a little dial on the top that you could just turn by hand and rotate everything. Vertical, wait, dial. So oh, if, that's interesting. If, if there, if the bottle, if you want to keep the bottles vertical, because even even if it has a cap, some of them are a little leaky, or you don't get the cap on just right. Um, but yeah. you could have like a vertical U, and you could just like twist a knob on the top of it to push everything forward or something like that. Yeah, that's interesting. Anywho. Yeah, cool. I, I see the value in that for sure. I think mostly because Jen froze most of it because she, uh, you know, after our combined maternity and paternity leave was up, uh, both kids went back to day went to daycare for the first time. Obviously, they're newborns, um, and so they they were in daycare when, uh, and so she we had mostly frozen. So we had plastic bags that you would write on the date uh, and freeze them, and right. and then you'd move them to the fridge before needed. Uh, so we'd ha- so they all had the dates on them for us uh, in that case, but yeah, gotcha, mm-hmm. yeah, interesting. So yeah, that's that's the idea that I'd been bouncing around. Cool, <laughs> excellent. Well, you you just have and you, uh, the nice thing is, kind of obviously, you have to come up with the specific design and everything and figure out exactly the solution you want to the various problems we discussed, but you just get a you know, a hundred dollar 3d printer and you can just crank out prototypes five a day, you know, true. do what you want. It's true. Just get it right. But then I have to also learn 3d nah. printing, like programming. No big deal. No big deal. Nice. And what, and what would you call this? That's the best, the most important thing, right? Oh yeah. I, I, I bottle, bottle caddy. Mm, yeah. Maybe bottle, bottle carousel. It's kind of a rip off of Kodak. Yeah, I don't know. I'm. I, I. I'll leave that for our listeners. Baby bandolier. If anybody, th- if anybody thinks of a good idea for the product name for this, I'd be happy to hear it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Excellent, cool man. Well, thank you for sharing your ideas. And I, as I said at the beginning, unfortunately, I'm not a Shark Tank investor, and I cannot give you uh, a money for. Boo. Yeah. So you'll just have to take this elsewhere. Good ideas. Good ideas. Thanks, man. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we should we should wrap. I think. Yeah. Well, it was lovely chatting it's with you. That time. Uh, and good yeah, to get a you know. I gotcha. The as I've said with other friends, 
even if literally no one listens to this, which is effectively true, it's fun to just chat, you know? Like, it's an excuse to have a long conversation that we have not had otherwise. The only other times we've talked in the past, like, year is when we've been playing video games, I mean, you know, computer games, and we've been mostly talking about the game itself the whole time. So it's just good to have a, a long chat and talk about what's going on. Totally agreed. Well, sir, uh, thank you very much. Uh, thanks for being on the show, and uh, hope hope to talk to you again soon. Sounds good. Same to you. 